Hey y'all, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. I'm the show's host and producer, Mike Joseph. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the show, I kindly ask that you smash the subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please don't hesitate to rate, comment, and recommend. If you have someone in your life that could get something out of the conversations we're having here, tell them about the show. Also, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph, that is T I S Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out if you know someone who might be interested in being interviewed on the show or if you have any other ideas or constructive criticism. Most importantly, I thank you very much for listening. Stay well. Hey, folks, this episode features Reed Martin. Reed is the owner of Mid-Citizen Entertainment, a music company that represents Lokut Kani, who's Adam Wiener you heard from a few weeks back on this podcast, as well as the amazing Big Frida, the Grammy-nominated band Tank and the Bangers, and more. Uh, Reed is based in New Orleans, fantastic city, and uh, during our conversation you will hear why he wants New Orleans to be his base of operation as opposed to more typical music industry uh, cities like New York or Los Angeles. Uh, You'll also hear how he gets his boundless energy, uh, how much he hustled to land where he's landed, and uh, you'll also find out how he got the best advice that he's ever gotten at a urinal. So uh, check it out. I'm happy to introduce you all to Reed Martin. My name is Reed Martin. I am the co-founder of Mid-Citizen Entertainment, which is a management company based in New Orleans, where I live and where my partner, Tavia Osby, also lives. And my journey through the music industry started in school I went to Loyola, New Orleans, which has a music industry program where I studied that in economics and was fortunate when I was in college, I, I had an internship very early on, actually my, my second semester of my freshman year that turned into a job when I was a sophomore at a PR firm. So I was like an assistant, but I, I got to do that instead of having to wait tables or anything like that, which I do later on in the story. Um, <laughs> but yes, so... Started a band when I was in college as well, graduated during the recession. There just wasn't anything out there. And so my bandmates and I, you know, it was like, screw it. This is what we actually want to do. Let's give it a shot. And I was the singer songwriter and, and manager of a band for, for three years after school. And during that time, I worked at the Lowe's Hotel as a server, bartender, runner, you name it. Just learned all the jobs so that when I came back from tour, I could still have a job. And that was from 2009 to late 2012. Probably played 80 to 90 dates a year, was booking the shows. And uh, that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I shouldn't have. I should have gotten <laughs> help. I was like really DIY. And just thought like, I don't need any help, you know. And at that time too, the music industry was in just such dire straits still. Streaming hadn't yet started, but sales had been completely gutted. So at the time, if you were thinking about the music business, it was like pure entrepreneurship, just do it yourself. The whole thing, the infrastructure sucks, you know. But we broke up and... I entered a pretty dark period, which is a good thing to have happened. So there's one day I went to the Loyola library and I might be long-winded and you can edit this. It is totally cool. Yeah. (laughs) So I got home from like a two or three month tour and I was burned out. I saw the writing on the wall that this just wasn't going to keep going. And so I went to the Loyola library just to like email people on the business side of music that I knew, trying to figure out what was next for me. 
And so the first email that I send is to the manager of a band in New Orleans called the Soul Rebels. And they're fantastic brass band. And this manager also booked a Voodoo Fest. And he had booked my band on Voodoo Fest a couple years prior. So I would take him out to coffee, pick his brain, try and learn some things. And so I'm like, I'll intern, I'll work for cheap. I'm just trying to get back on the business side of music. And he hit me back right away. He's like, yeah, I've got some stuff you could do. So I'm like nowhere even through my second email. And my buddy, Mike, who I went to college with, sits down next to me. And, you know, I'm like, what are you doing here? We're both three years out of college. He's like, oh, I've been coming here to study for this MBA that I'm doing at UNO. I'm like, all right, cool. He's like, man, I saw this garage on Ferret Street. Somebody needs to do something with it. And I'm like, music venue? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, let's go check it out. Why not us? So I don't send the second email. I, we go down <laughs> Ferret Street, which is the street near the universities. And we check it out. We make friends with the landlord. And we spend the next four days hustling a business plan together. And Long story, like he gives it to a Korean barbecue restaurant and Mike had been throwing shows at his house, like again, DIY touring bands, like in his backyard. And hours after the landlord had called this Korean barbecue restaurant to say, Hey, the lease is yours. If you have the money by this time, these girls walk by, they're like, Oh, this is the place that Mike's going to be doing shows, you know? And he's just like, God, I don't know why I believe in these guys. So he calls the restaurant back. He's like, Sorry, I have to put this on hold. Calls us. He's like, if you can get me first and last month's rent by the end of the week, the place is yours. I don't know why, but we're just like, shit. So it's busy season bartending at this hotel in downtown New Orleans. So I've got four grand in my checking account and we need 3,600 bucks to pay the first and last month's rent. And so I roll the dice. I drain my bank account, which again, $4,000, a lot to a 25 year old. <laughs> But I also know that I can make it back in a few days, you know, just working at the bar during the season that it was in New Orleans. Sure. So, so then we have a month to figure out how we're going to do a venue and finance it and everything. And never do that. Never do that. <laughs> Words of caution. <laughs> never do that. Holy we, shit. Uh, my partner, Mike's landlord, owned like 70 properties, was the son of a Texas oil baron, and had just FU money. Right. But he was the only rich person that we knew. And he was kind of young. And so he was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so we got this horrible deal where we were paying both debt and gave him equity in the place. And it, it hamstrung the whole thing. By the way, the venue's called Gasa Gasa. It still exists. We sold it during the pandemic. When we sold it, I only had 1% ownership in it at that point. More okay. on that I, I never owned more than 5% because my 3,600 bucks was my only financial contribution. Gotcha. The new owners are doing a phenomenal job, but it wound up becoming like a Bowery booked venue, which then became an AEG booked venue. So it's a 200 cap room and it's actually a pretty reputable room in New Orleans. But after we'd gotten that off the ground, it was not big enough for me to actually stay on day to day. It was a small operation. And so I took my 5% and I'm just like, I'm going to keep doing this stuff. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur now. This is, this is my new thing. So I tried something a lot bigger at this dilapidated bowling alley that hadn't been refurbished since Katrina and was still like blighted and tried to do something a lot bigger. And let's just say I failed. 
wound up in anywhere from like ten dollars to $12,000 in high interest bank debt. Just took out loans at all the different banks in town on the same day. So 5000 from Whitney, 2000 from Shell Credit Union, stuff like that. And all for like deposits and earnest money and inspections and shit like that. And it's a Walmart now. So that's, that's really when I got kind of depressed. And I moved to a place where my rent was 250 bucks a month, which is, you know, you can imagine wasn't. Uh-huh. The best part of town. I don't want to imagine. Holy crap. (laughs) And I got a real estate license and a job as a business broker, which is like if, you know, the local coffee shop or the gas station that's owned by mom and pop on the corner wants to sell, you confidentially try and find a buyer for them. So it's just like little main street businesses. So it's doing real estate, but for businesses. And I was terrible at it. I'm (laughs) probably 26 at the time. Looked like I was 19 still. And these are 65-year-old men that have worked at the same pizza shop their entire life and think it's worth way more than it actually is. Like, sure, this is their retirement plan. Who's this schmo telling them, sorry, your thing's only worth 70 grand, not a quarter million. But I learned how to have conversations in a more substantive way and try and sound authoritative by doing that. But it was all commission. I sucked at it. I still had to bartend at night. So I'd go to my nine to five with my suit on during the day. And then like, then I'd go working at a couple different bartend bars, still the hotel, but then a couple other spots. But in the background this whole time, I'm working for this manager for $10 an hour. I shit you not, like when Yo Gabba Gabba was coming to town and he was the (laughs) promoter for it. I'm at like the family event at the zoo during Halloween, like in the parking lot, putting Yo Gabba Gabba flyers on cars. And I'm 25 or 26 years old doing what I was doing when I was 18 at Loyola. And I graduated in a fairly high position in the class too. And I'm like, fuck, what am I doing? (laughs) But the tour manager for the Soul Rebels started wanting some time off. And so I had been on the road and this manager's like, hey, do you want to go out with the guys in three weeks? Like we need a different TM and you've been out there. I'm like, cool. And so... I started becoming the Soul Rebels B-team tour manager. And then within two months, that tour manager stepped down. And so the gig was mine for the taking. And I was slowly starting to come out of that debt by living super cheap and having way too many jobs. And so somewhere along the lines, I'm able to move out of my place. Some really bad shit was happening on my block. and But I move out of that place. I And now the Soul Rebels full-time tour manager. So I stopped business brokering. And so I enter an actually incredible period of my life where I used to say that I was retired. Um, (laughs) Okay. So there would be years where the Soul Rebels would go to Europe four times. There was a year where we hit every continent except Antarctica. And I got paid to do it. And then when I was in town, I had scaled back my, my service industry work just back to the hotel that I'd always been at, which was at that point, I was so comfortable in it. And I'm like, I live in New Orleans and work at a bar that's easy it's I you know I don't sweat it and I get paid to travel like I do the like literally what people do when they that's the dream but during that kind of dark period for like a year I I really did work seven days a week and my body I think had internalized that so somewhere along the lines my ambition got the better of me and I saw this band this was in 2014 this band called Sweet Crude playing at Gossip Gossip and they just absolutely blew me away. And I, I knew all the people in the band because when you're in your mid to late 20s and you were in a band, 
most of those bands have broken up. Maybe one has gone on and stayed together and has found success. But then the musicians that break up, you either break up and you go do something completely different. You do what I did, which was get on the business side. Or if it's the only thing you know, then you start another band or another artist career and you know just how good you actually have to be this time. And that was Sweet Crude. When I saw them, they blew me away. So I stalked them for several months until they relented and let me be their manager. And the truth is, even up to this point, most of my skills as a manager come from mistakes that I made trying to do it myself as a musician. But it was having kind of this Gossa Gossa card under my belt, but really the Soul Rebels. Like the Soul Rebels were a professional operation, still are. Right. And, and I got to see that like, you know, from like the DIY level to like this mid-level indie band level, which is what the Soul Rebels would be at, who are making a, a, a living playing music and music only. There's obviously differences, but there's so much that's the same. The same way that things obviously change if you're in arenas, but there are things that you think about that are you're just thinking about on a different scale. Sure. So that made me think like, oh, it's weird. I never thought, oh, I'm going to be a manager. I saw Sweet Crude and I'm like, I have the experience to do this. I actually think that I can be of service and that I can help here. And it turns out that that was a thing that New Orleans needed. We constantly have this conversation where New Orleans has some of the best music in the world, which is absolutely true. It actually has the best music in the world per capita. I'd be inclined to agree with you there. Yeah, yeah. There's a really robust live music infrastructure here because we have so many festivals and so many events all the time. I mean, every weekend there's at least like a street fair, street fest going on. Sure. Tons of venues. So we definitely turn out a lot of tour managers and a lot of people in the production and, and events world. But we don't have any labels, management companies, agencies, publishing companies, kind of the desk job side of the music industry. Sure. Um, it really supports artists. Like, as artists grow here, whether they're Trombone Shorty or The Revivalists or name an artist that has broken out in New Orleans recently, typically their management and their agent and their label are... LA, Nashville, New York, New York somewhere yeah. outside of New Orleans, which is fine, totally fine. But those commission dollars go elsewhere. And so one of the things when I was considering like, oh, I want to manage and I've got this one client, should I try and get a job at a management firm and move? Or, you know, so my, the thing is like, even in 2014, the conversation that I just told you about, like how we've got great music, but no music business infrastructure, it was a thing. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to stay in New Orleans. I'm going to try and be a part of this solution. And still trying. We were about to pass some really great tax credit legislation that allows music industry companies to move down and get 10% of their payroll refunded. So awesome. you know, I guess the point is I start managing acts. And so one of the artists that Sweet Crude's playing with all the time is a band called Tank and the Bangers. And they have a manager and had a manager at the time, Tavia Osby. And she managed the band from the start. She convinced Tank to start a band. So we just start working together because we each have our own artists that we manage. We're under like this common branding umbrella, but like all my commissions are going to me. All her commissions are going to her. Okay. And so in 2015... I got the chance to, I knew Big Frida's attorney. Frida's attorney 
his first client out of law school was my band. Oh, wow. So, so Small it world. all comes back around somehow. That's right. Yeah, I have a lot of unpaid legal bills for that guy still. <laughs> so Frida had a, a management contract that was expiring on September 1st of 2015. And Frida's team knew in January of that year that it was not going to get renewed. So luckily I got asked because I'd started managing artists and there wasn't anybody really in New Orleans that was doing it that much. So they're like, we need a manager that's in New Orleans for Frida. That's what Frida needs. I probably had five interviews with Frida over the course of the spring and summer of 2015. And I just was out with the Soul Rebels one time, got a call from that lawyer and it's like, Frida's made a decision and you got the gig. And I'm just like, holy shit. Hey. Yeah. So I started managing Frida in 2015 and that allowed me to transition out of tour managing the Soul Rebels. Yeah, I guess I didn't explain how like I'm bartending at night during the weekdays, managing my artists during the daytime hours, and then I'm on the road with the Soul Rebels on the weekend. How does that even work? Like, how do you do that without cocaine? My Instagram handle is little kid with lots of energy. Yeah, yeah I was about to mention that. Like, I actually can't drink any, like have any stimulants above green tea. Like wow. cocaine, coffee, Coca-Cola. I mean, I've got enough energy as it is. Where does that come from? Eight hours of sleep. I will, <laughs> I will literally, I, I will do horrible things to people if I don't sleep for eight hours. Uh, do we so, noted? Yeah, so like if I'm on a gig till 1.30 in the morning, then I'm like, all right, I'm setting an alarm for 9.30. I am going to be in this bed for eight hours. Obviously that doesn't work all the time, but... Okay, but I did I did start to reach a point where I was generating enough commissions where I was able to scale back the bartending work. And somewhere before I signed Frida, I was able to just be managing and tour managing. Like the Soul Rebels had become the consistent income. And so, uh, yeah, I signed Frida as a client. I stopped tour managing. I, I phased that out over the next like five to six months. And I'm just a manager. Somehow this little side hustle became my job. So that was awesome. And then like... A year later, a little bit over a year later, Tank and the Bangas win the Tiny Desk Contest. Right. And Tavia and I were still working together. And then all of a sudden, it's like every agent and their mom was calling, every label and their mom was calling. And so we just started flying around the country trying to figure out how we were going to build out Tank's team. They still would have gotten to where they are today because they're incredible. Absolutely. But they got struck by lightning. But they were, granted, seven years in. Like Frida had been gigging like just a madman for 10 to 11 years before it started to turn over for Frida. Right. And that's, it does generally take about a decade, barring getting struck by lightning, which Tank and the Bangas did. And so that's when Tavi and I were just like, I'll put in my Frida, you put in your tank, and we put ourselves on salary to ourselves to, to like a level that we could sustainably live, but was less than what we would make if we were just taking in our commissions. Sure. And then, and then we hired and started signing more acts. And that, when we combined that and did that, that's what Mid Citizen Entertainment is. The official start date of Mid Citizen Entertainment is January 1 of 2018, which brings us more or less kind of where we are now. Yeah. We, we do Tank of the Bangas, Big Frida, The Suffers from Houston, Texas, Sin Kane from Brooklyn by way of Sudan, Low Cut Connie from Philadelphia, Sweet Crude in New Orleans. Chawa in New Orleans, Alfred Banks in New Orleans, and then we, we've got other projects that are based down here, Sax Kicks Ave, Alexis and the Samurai. I think we've got a really fucking dope roster. I'm proud of it. 
And um, we're selective about the things we sign. We sign artists that we think can still do it when they're 65 and have something unique to say. And that's kind of the guiding light. Amen to that. I, yeah. I, I gotta ask, so many questions have sort of uh, popped into my head during the time that you were talking beyond just the fact that like, holy shit, you have a lot of energy. One thing that is really interesting to me with your artists is the fact that they are so unique and it's like, you're not looking for the next cookie cutter, like teen pop star. You're not looking for the next, you know, uh, mumble rapper or whatever. What is it in you that is like, I want to, cause Big Frida is to middle America, a challenging artist. Tank and the Bang is, I think, you know, just because of the way they a meld genres is a challenging artist. You know, even Low Cut Connie is, is sort of a challenging artist. What is it? about you that either attracts or you know purposefully goes out to look for these folks who have things very unique to say yeah first off i am just into music that is you know i i love pop music i love a good hook i so our acts do tend to make fairly catchy music yeah absolutely but you know i would say a couple things first off with sweet crude being our first client they sing in half Louisiana French and they have a very unique story in the sense that Alexis Marceau, the lead singer of the band, her grandfather used to get punished in school for speaking French. Like that was their native language. But in between the two world wars, like there was a like French in Louisiana, there was a big nationalist play and the French in Louisiana got this stigma the way Spanish has in the U.S. now, like, you know, everybody speak English. That's right. Right. Uh, So the road signs were changed. You couldn't have French in schools anymore, that sort of thing. And, and they had this very interesting way that it was its own language that really descended from the Acadians in Canada, which we just call Cajuns in Louisiana. And so essentially this, like with their parents' generation, this language disappeared. And it was the native language of all of these people, white, black, everything that lived in Louisiana. And so mm-hmm. they took it upon themselves to, to relearn it and learn it the way it was spoken. And instead of making music in like Zydeco or Cajun that still uses that language, they love that kind of music, of course, but it's like they wanted to make modern music that is inspired by South Louisiana, but also appeals to them. And I've just found it like, literally this band has a moat around it. No one is going to do this exact thing. Right. And so uh, there's a ceiling. You cannot go any further. But also, it's, it's inherently interesting art. And in, I would much rather, as a business person, A, represent something that I'm very passionate about and has sure. meaning to the culture, to wherever it's from. Sure. But B... I would, I just don't want to sign like, 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 again, there's a lot of music that I love that sounds like a lot of other things. If I just sign the other, the next big pop star that needs to go onto a major label and it's just about just ramming it through the system with a bunch of money, I, I literally don't know how to play that game. I don't have the contacts for it or anything. But what I found was if I can represent something that musically is meaningful and culturally meaningful, that is enough to get people to talk 
you know, word of mouth is the most important thing. So it is a business decision too, as much as it is about my personal taste, but I do like to represent things that are a challenge. That's, it's That's awesome. You seem to have gotten a lot of where you've gotten through just knowing other people who are sort of doing things that you can pitch in on. Like how important has networking and staying in touch with contacts and being that person who's like, hey, remember me? Like how important is that? Extremely. I, I, so when I started tour managing the Soul Rebels, that is when I realized, okay, I have something legitimate that I can kind of latch onto. So if the band was playing in Los Angeles or New York, I would ask the manager to just fly me home three days later. I'll pay my own way. I'll make sure the band is checked in at the airport. Everything's good. But then I'm after they get on a flight and everybody's back in New Orleans, everything's cool anyway. So it's like, I'm going to stay. And the one person in New York that I know that I feel like might be able to connect me with other people will help me connect with other people. And it's just kind of built that way. And so then once I signed Sweet Crude, so this is in 2015. This is before Frida. I'm up in New York for APAP and Offbeat Magazine put Sweet Crude on the cover. And then the next month they put Tank and the Bengas on the cover. And I'm trying to schedule as many meetings as I can. Both of these bands are very much local acts at the time, but they're buzzing. These are like, look, they're on the cover of this magazine that matters in South Louisiana. Right. And I remember going to ICM, like pitching, you know, I'm like, all right, Sweet Crew just signed with High Road, but Tank and the Bengas don't have an agent yet. And they're like, all right. I'm like, they're opening for such and such at the Brooklyn Bowl tonight. You gotta go. This band's gonna blow you away. Trying to get people to do that. I was a nobody, but I was able to get in the door. But a lot of people still didn't go to the shows. And I was saying, you gotta go see this. I put myself out there as much as I can. But then like, Obviously signing Frida, like people will then like, Start you know, paying attention. Take, take you seriously a little bit. But then when Tank blew up, because I, I had pitched them to so many people, I got several phone calls. Anything that you want me to sign from here on out, I'm going to sign. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that really, you know, in tennis, there's a phrase that you're only as good as your second serve. And artist management or in anything where you're representing artists, you're only as good as your artist. That makes sense. You've got to put in the hustle. But if I'm not signing something that I think is awesome, that when I do finally get a person out to the show to see the band or to see, you know, whoever it is, like, I know that my artist is going to deliver. So I'm only signing acts that I know they're going to blow anybody away. And I feel like I see an artist like that once a year. And for me, it's live. I love live music so much. And I know that Spotify numbers matter and Instagram followers matter. But the metric that I give a shit about is ticket sales i live in a city which has the best live music right it all the time so if i get blown away then i'm just like oh shit i've i've got to i've got to sign this i remember seeing low cut connie in 2018 it was it was november of 2018 they were playing a sold out show at gasa gasa i went there with frida's a and r we were having a writing camp and and it was dante ross if you know dante i know dante i mean i know of dante ross i wish i knew dante ross so Dante and I go down to Gasa Gasa and like, it's just one of those moments where I'm just like, I was sad because this is the best show I've seen in years and I don't manage this band. And <laughs> turns out they invited me to the show because the manager of the time was looking like to like partner up with a management company. And we wound up 
winning that whole battle royale. They wanted to be with something small and, and everything else. And we just sold out Bowery Ballroom today, by the way. Awesome. The, show, the show's in December. That's we, crazy. I mean, they're a freak show. And, and even though it's just down the middle, old school rock and roll, Adam is Freddie Mercury. I had no idea. Like, he's so androgynous. He's so captivating. He loves everyone. And he makes everybody in that room, like, just the wave of acceptance that comes over everybody. It's a feeling like no other. And you become a believer. You become a member of this church. So, again, artists like that who have something you, like, Low Cut Connie is, I mean, I hope they have a hit, but it doesn't matter. Adam can do this till he is 70 years old if he wants to. We'll follow him to the grave. Right. With all that you have going on, what is your work-life balance? Obviously, the eight hours of sleep is important, but how, how does Reed turn it down? Because you can't be the manager, the hustler, the music guy 24-7 right. without getting right. burned out at some point. Totally. And I have gotten burned out every once in a while, especially during the pandemic. It's been hard. Sure. But, but I'm fortunate that I love my job and I derive energy from my job. I'm also fortunate that there's a lot of perks when there's not a pandemic. I travel a lot and I still enjoy traveling and I enjoy live music. So I go see as many of our artist shows as I can. And I'm also, you know, pretty social in here in New Orleans. Luckily we're in a place where no one gives a shit about what you do. People kind of care more so about how you celebrate your life. Like what Mardi Gras crew are you in or things like that. I don't have to, tell people that I'm an artist manager of some big New Orleans acts. I, right. I like it comes up, it comes up, but like it's it, so New Orleans, like you can't be that much of a, like, I I'm fortunate. Like I'm in like the top 10% of people in terms of the amount that I work in the city, but it's four o'clock in the afternoon here, the movers and shakers in town, if you will, or, or whatever, maybe supposedly, but they're starting drinking at four o'clock, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I guess it's a little bit arrogant, but I do believe that per capita and for the price you pay, New Orleans has, uh, there's downsides to it like there is to every city, but it's got the best food. It's got the best music and people, it just moves slow. It's swampy, it's hot. And I can vouch for that. It is. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't have a tried and true method. I do meditate a lot. I journal a lot. I try and keep a morning routine. But I will say, I don't kick myself like I used to if I don't meditate or do yoga or something like that. Like I used to be like, I got to do these self-improvement things. If I feel good, awesome. But if I feel anxious, then yeah, I'm going to do like a 15-minute emergency yoga session. Look, I get off balance like anybody else. Sure. And that's just something constant, constant set of discovery. I've had a therapist for the last three years, which has been amazing. We meet every couple weeks via phone. And again, my tactics changes as my needs change. As that should probably be for everybody. I mean, the same method doesn't necessarily work for everybody all the time, but I do think it's super important to have something in your back pocket, particularly when you're a pretty high functioning fellow. So I I would imagine that unless you have good uh, self-care methods that that could spin out of control really, really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it it can. And it has. No. Uh, so, which we can detail if you want, but. Yeah. Do you know what you would be doing if you didn't do what you are doing now? Man, I, I'm really grateful 
that I'm in the situation that I'm in. I have two older brothers, so like family of all guys, who I grew up in Kansas City. I moved to New Orleans a week before Katrina. I've got great Oh, time. wow. Yeah. Holy um, shit. But they have wonderful families and stable jobs in the whole nine in, in Kansas City. And I knew that that life, some, somewhere, when I made the decision after college to play in a band, I, something switched in my brain to where I was like, I can do this. Like, I didn't think that just in the way that I, I figured I would have to go get a stable job, get married, have kids, like do check all the boxes. And when I made that decision, I realized I didn't die. Like you, you jump and the net will appear. And I, I've fallen pretty far before the nets appeared a few times, but that's also been really instructive. So, I mean, look, like if th there were times during the pandemic, you know, when our business completely flopped for several months where I was considering like it, when restaurants and bars were like opening in some ways, like, should I like go get a shift or something? Like, it doesn't matter if Big Frida's manager has to go like do whatever in a pandemic to make it work. Right. And so that's been helpful too. Just, just having moments in my life where I've been pretty humble. I don't know. Yeah. So to be honest, I literally have no clue what no I clue. do. I have no clue. Obviously you didn't have the whole vision right away, but you stayed the course and you know, I, I don't know if there was necessarily an easy fallback option, but you had in your head, like an idea of what a fallback option looked like, you know, whether it be settling down or, or getting out of New Orleans, but you were like, screw it. I'm going to figure out a way to do what I'm going to do. And then you ended up doing it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm very blessed. That's all I kind of can say. I mean, yeah, there was hard work and everything, but there's, there's so much in my life where I thought I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like how, how am I a 27 year old guy that I thought I studied really hard and did everything right. And all of my friends are, you know, leap years ahead of me or working at this thing or whatever. It turns out I was in the right place at the right time the whole time. I mean, even down to managing Frida, like my band it in some ways looks like a failure because we didn't make it in the standard sense, but our, I met our attorney who represented Frida, you know, and I learned so much that has been valuable to me. So I've been really blessed in that way. And I, I still am constantly learning a lot and getting to know more people too. Amen to that. Yeah. With the management stuff, one interesting thing is I, I've been having a lot of conversations, like I'm part of this, I want, it's not really a therapy group, but it's sort of similar for TMs and roadies. And uh, I speak to a lot of people and just from being in the industry, as long as I have, being a tour manager is kind of like being a psychiatrist almost because artists are mercurial people and they, you know, have their kind of odd ways and creativity can be kind of a weird thing and success and fame and all that stuff. How do you manage the mental health of your artists and make sure your artists are cool while also still making sure that Reed is cool and you're not yeah. sacrificing like your own sanity at the expense of other people? Man, this is a fantastic question. <laughs> Thank you. So. There's a few facets to this question, to this answer. When I was in a band, 
and I was in my early 20s. And also, I should say, when I was a server during that time, too, whenever there was catastrophe, whether it was at the restaurant or on tour, I mean, you, you see my energy. Like, that can get channeled. And, like, that wasn't channeled appropriately. I'd be, like, just panicking, you know? And every time, the world wouldn't end. And so when I started tour managing the Soul Rebels, same thing. Like, we had two minivans on hold and they don't have minivans. Like, Reed pacing, biting his fingernails, pulling his hair out, freaking out. Having a trombone player miss a flight to Australia. And also that business broker job, too. Where, like, I was dealing with people's hopes and dreams and having to figure that out. So I would like to think that I'm a fairly empathetic person. And the way that manifested itself earlier in my life, and I'm only 34 right now, so it's still early days. A young, but, young buck. Yeah, earlier and younger than I am now, it, it manifests itself by me like trying to, like just immersing myself almost too much in the other person's shoes and, or just like too much in like the world is crashing down. But luckily I've been in that situation in every different form so many times that A, I'm able to like, for my current tour managers, coach them, like, everything's fine. Like, it doesn't matter that the flight's canceled. Everything's fine. <laughs> going to figure this out. I do, so with the managers that work underneath Tavia and I at MidCitizen, too, like, people, like, are just like, holy shit, this is going wrong. Like, we're chill. Like, I, I am between, between being in so many catastrophic situations, and I say catastrophic, like, work cat catastrophic, sure. not actual catastrophic. And also just being in therapy and, and like learning about my side of the street, you know, as, as my therapist calls it, you know, staying kind of in my center, that has really helped me with my artists. Because as a, as a tour manager, you're one kind of psychologist. It's really in the moment. It is acute level stress. It's much more like being a, a server or a bartender where things happen right then. And so luckily I've had that same mental experience from that, which is an analog to tour management. But as a manager, things get a lot deeper in the sense that you're truly managing the hopes and dreams of your artists yeah. who are inherently insecure people <laughs> because the supply of available music dramatically outstrips the demand and the dollars available for those artists to make a living, right? Yeah. So you're always at risk of like getting to here and then coming back down so to get to a place where an artist is comfortable in their core and just trust their art takes a little bit and so i am very fortunate in that aspect because i have had that insecurity deeply and my band broke up i didn't make it i failed and i didn't die and i manage artists that were bigger than I ever was as an artist, but I still can relate to the feelings of being an artist and being insecure about that fact. Because it's like, if you're a plumber, if you're a bartender, if you're an accountant, like if I messed up somebody's drink order at the bar, that's not reflecting on me personally. If I get a drink order right and somebody's like, this is the best thing ever, it feels great, but there's some distance between me and the work. Sure. And so what I work on with my artists is trying to create that same distance because even though these are your lyrics and this is you, you are still, and not to de you like humanize like how amazing the service is, but you are still providing a service. 
And if you play a bad show, if you have a reaction to a song that you didn't expect, or if you're reading too many comments, you got to distance yourself from the work a little bit. And so I, I work with my artists on that psychologically. Let's put in the work. Let's do the best thing we can. Know that we put it out there. And, and man, like sometimes people really misinterpret what artists are saying. Oh, yeah. And that, it can be really hurtful. I mean, look, I'm not going to, this podcast is going to air after, but Frida has a huge day tomorrow. Lady Gaga is announcing the 10-year anniversary of the album Born This Way right? and putting out a deluxe edition in June. And we're here talking here in May. They're announcing that album with one single before it comes out. And it's Frida's version of Judas. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's amazing. It's a, Frida's biggest musical moment up to this point because right. the cover of Judas slapped. But B, Gaga's whole, you know, some elements of Frida's fan base like Frida is very Christian himself. And I, by the way, Frida doesn't care about pronouns. I'll go yeah. between me and her constantly. I have, I have, I've read that uh, Frida is, is not a big, big pronoun person. Yeah. Frida identifies as a gay man, but just does not care. But anyways, there will be elements of Frida's fan base that's pretty religious that may not understand that that like Frida's interpret, interpretation of the song Judas is about being scorned by a lover that you just can't quit. Right. Which is, you know, essentially the song is, and Frida relates to it, and just made a banging version of it. 90% of our fans are going to just be here for it and think it's so empowering that this black gay artist is taking it and made it super New Orleans. There's a bounce beat. There's horns all over it. It's so cool. One element of our fan base is going to be like Illuminati or like Frida's the, the, is doing Antichrist stuff, sure. you know? We can't control that, but I, I know Frida's worried about it. And at the end of the day, you've got to be able to create some distance. This is important art that is being made or important in the sense that like it's going to have an impact on people and, and it's contributing to the greater good. And if somebody gets mad at it, what can you do? Yeah, so be it. So be it, man. Yeah. I got to ask, I, I got to, I haven't brought my standard last question out for a while but i feel like it's appropriate to close out this this conversation what is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten oh man <laughs> okay <laughs> okay this is this is so random but actually like <laughs> okay so in my early 20s i was out on a sunday night at this music venue called dba and it's one of the best venues in new orleans if the listeners listening to this podcast are down in New Orleans anytime soon. You know, if they've been, they probably know it, but it's on it's on Frenchman Street and which has gotten fairly touristy over the years, but DBA keeps it 100 by charging covers and plant and having great, great New Orleans bands in there that get paid. So I'm in DBA on a Sunday night. I'm probably 23 years old. Uh, I was at like a pool party earlier in the day. I've been going at it all day and I'm with a couple friends. And I go to the bathroom. And I, I, there's two urinals. This old man starts peeing next to me. And like about 10 seconds into both of us peeing, he turns to me and he's like, do you have any regrets? And I'm just like, oh God, Whoa. <laughs> do you have any regrets in your life? And I'm just like, I, I'm just like, no man, but like I'm 23. And he's like, that's good, I do. And this guy's probably 70 years old. 
And I'm like, look, man, by the time I'm your age, I probably, I'm certain I will. He's like, you probably will. But I know people my age that don't. And you should be one of those people. And he walked out. And I'm just like, holy shit. <laughs> That's one of those like weird, like you almost feel like it's a movie scene, right? Like somebody <laughs> walks in, like drops the advice bomb right there. And, and then just strolls the fuck out. Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. in a bathroom in downtown New Orleans. You never know when the inspiration's gonna come, man. <laughs> but that, it stuck with me, it stuck with me. So I've, I, I've never, you know, I've had bosses, of course. I've had to work for other people to, to pay bills, but in my main pursuit in life, I've always wanted to be fairly entrepreneurial. And so I've kept that as a North Star, like, all right, I'm gonna, whatever I'm gonna do, I'm gonna wind up being my own boss. And, Luckily, I've gotten there, and that dude in that bathroom really like helped me stay on course. The things that you can learn while taking a piss. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Reed, for taking the time out of your schedule to chat. We shoved a lot into 40 minutes, and this is one of those situations in which I would love there to be a part two because there was a fair amount of stuff that we didn't cover. Actually, I feel like I could do a part two with just about everybody that I've interviewed for this podcast so far. So if you're listening and you want there to be a part two, hit me up. If, whether you were a guest and you want to talk again, or you're a listener and you want to follow up on some of the conversations we've had before, hit me up, my socials and all that stuff. You've got all the information. Reed's artists are all great. Make sure you check out their music and follow them on socials. You can follow Reed himself on Instagram at littlekidwithlotsofenergy, which might be one of the most true-to-life IG handles in existence. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, Twitter, TizMikeJoseph, or you can email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Always willing to hear constructive criticism, thoughts, ideas, realizations, and if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest, I will take recommendations from now until the end of time, so please feel free to reach out to me. I want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show. Uh, Calvin Williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. Jacob Block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.